Mana 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 this is social disgusting welcome to social disgusting a podcast where my guests and i discuss our lives amidst the wanton hellscape in which we find ourselves i am brandon aka brandon hope you're well my guest is a comedy director producer and writer as well as a clippers mega fan who has directed so many great shows including but not limited to the last man on earth who is america champagne illinois or champagne ill i should say now available on hulu Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Black Monday. Please welcome Payment Benz. Welcome. What's up? Thanks, man. Appreciate yeah, it. Absolutely. You either, you, I, I'm, I'd be curious to know, do you would you get metrics on like how far people listen to an episode? Because I feel like you may have lost some people when you said that I was a Clipper fan. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Now I'm really curious too. I think via Apple I can. So okay. I'll click that. And then then if it, if it averages like, um, if it, if you know, what's funny is it, it may be such a little amount of time it just registers as not listening at all. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we may get a lot of a lot of quick intros and outros for people that don't even. Like, yeah. Oh my god, this is gonna be like that Dana Carvey like sketch where he's milking the puppies as Bill Clinton, and they just saw the numbers <laughs> drop in real time, and the show yeah. got canceled. <laughs> Did you watch that documentary about that show? By the way, uh, the uh, I think I watched it four times. Too it's pretty funny great. To, I think it's Too Funny to Fail. Is that what it's called? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's on um, Hulu as well. Yeah. It's amazing. It was directed by the dude that directed Barb and Star, which is like one of the funniest comedies I've seen since I don't even know when. I think, um, you know, I, I say, I, first of all, I think that that movie is unbelievable. It, unbelievable. It is a very, um, I always think of it as like a very much a kindred spirit to MacGruber, uh, actually, Absolutely. which is my favorite comedy, period. I think it's, it's the funniest amazing. thing I've ever seen. It's for, no, for sure. Jo- uh, Josh Greenbaum is the director's name. It's like he, it, 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 the Barb and Stark to me was like, it was, it's what I fell in love with when it came to theatrical comedy growing up, because it was like, it was like Dumb and Dumber and Step Brothers and mm. something about Mary and Austin Powers all in one. Absolutely. And, and it like I I'm you know if if there weren't a pandemic that movie would have destroyed in a theater it would have it like because I, I feel like people are undervaluing like the the feeling the the communal feeling in a theater when you watch a comedy because we've had so many bad ones over the years that people stopped trusting and now they want to go to big expensive stuff because you know you're taking your family out and spending a hundred something bucks. Um, but like that's one of the movies that I think would have reminded people that like oh it's actually also fun to just be in a theater and laugh with like two hundred other people. A one hundred percent. I'm really kind of it's weird, you know. Obviously, there are billions of reasons to hate the pandemic, and one very low level one is a resentment toward not being able to experience that in the theater. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> very exactly. Low. Yeah. Because yeah. you know it would have been it would have been amazing, you know, kind of like um. I remember Pineapple Express was kind of like that for me and Bridesmaids mm-hmm. of everybody laughing at the same time and just all everyone getting it simultaneously. It was great. Oh, it's the best. And then like, you know, a certain character pops up on screen and everyone already knows it's going to be funny. Like God, <laughs> that that like anticipation is so fun. Um, uh, yeah, but, that, but that, going back to the Dana Carvey thing, that doc is so good. Uh, and I was, you know, I was obsessed with the Dana Carvey show when it came out and like was so mad when it got canceled. Um, but you know, now I get it. I was like, I forgot like it was coming on after home improvement. <laughs> like it was the worst idea, but that show was so funny. It was just the wrong, 
it should have been a late night show. They should not have put that on prime time. Yeah, I remember watching it and kind of marveling at it in a even even being you know younger, still marveling though like how does this exist? Even before I knew, you know what what it is for something wild and how crazy it is for that to get made. Period. Even mm-hmm. before that, it transcended that of like marveling at the oddity of this show. Yeah, it was and so the, good. And that they would just like name the episode after the sponsor without telling the sponsor. <laughs> like, it's just like that was one of the funniest jokes to me that they were just caught. And then they would do crazy stuff. And I'm like, does AW Root Beer like know like what's going to be in tonight's show? Uh, and yeah, I suspect they didn't at all. I mean, I can't remember. No. I'm sure they covered that in the documentary. I can't remember. But yeah, there was something with the sponsors. They ended up getting sponsored by like a lo- the local Chinese restaurant that they were ordering from the whole season because all the national sponsors were like, "I'm out." Uh, that's yeah, incredible. That's that that does speak to also just how huge Dana Carvey was. That he they basically was, wrote man. a blank check for him and get this incredible writing staff. I mean, it's just the best of the best in every facet. I, I think people forget too, like he was the guy on SNL. And mm-hmm. like he, I mean, you know, I, I, Sandler, Farley, those are all like the, you know, they're all amazing. I love them. They're like idols, but like Carvey was so good at SNL. Like he's so good at what that show like needs. And, and, you know, he had that heart trouble after, and uh, you know, he had like a, I think he had like a botched surgery. So he yeah. like lost all that time. And like, it's like, he lost, we lost that rhythm. And by the time he came back, it was like, it was. It, I think that guy is so much funnier than what he ended up doing after SNL. It's like crazy because he was, you know, he was a freaking icon at that time. He's so underrated. I, th- um, I completely agree. And his comedy special too, with you know the famous like chopping broccoli bit mm-hmm. in it. I've watched that so many times just over yeah. the years. It's so he's just so inherently funny. And and to your point, like he was gigantic immediately on snl because he like he was you know at least in that generation he was the guy that would he had the funniest take on his impressions that yes. he, he would make up stuff that like you know like that everyone does not gone down because of him and it was like you know it was so exaggerated from what george bush actually said but it was such a dana carvey thing and I just feel like he always latched on to like a funny characteristic of someone. And it was a way that no one else, no one else did, man. He was so good. And then he did stuff like the church lady, which was like pretty, pretty, like if you think about doing that in the, in, back when he did it, it was pretty ballsy. Um, and I get why ABC gave him a bunch because he appealed to everybody. Um, you know, if there was someone that could have probably done something totally clean and, killed it would have been him but unfortunately they they didn't try to make that show at uh, all um, at all like they went <laughs> the complete other direction um but yeah no dina carvey is amazing amazing I, I feel like somebody else who did a version of that in a way although he, he played it even straighter though but phil hartman did that like he lashed on to really funny characteristics yeah. while also i mean that man I, it's hard to talk about him and not feel so bummed out because you know how brilliant he was but um but just that he he committed with he was both like silly but also a straight man at the same time in a weird way it's hard to describe but no no totally unbelievable 
was he was he played a really absurd straight man well <laughs> like that's basically what he did on like news radio he was so crazy funny on that show and like i mean hartman i i it, you know they're all, all the losses are tragic that one really hurt because it was so it wasn't because of you know a, a crazy lifestyle or something it was like unfair and he yes. seemed like a guy that was like like in un, you know like infallible like it felt like nothing wait something happened to phil hartman like uh it was that was a that was a tough one he was amazing man hartman was he was man he'd still be doing stuff right now he'd be in everything it's a uh, the other thing too is with him that i know he'd been around for a, a minute at that point but it also just felt like he was just getting started like his post mm-hmm. snl run he hadn't really he hadn't gotten his starring role in a movie he hadn't gotten Mm-mm. his own show he hadn't gotten we hadn't gotten the anywhere close to the full or full possibility of the Phil Hartman experience. No, I totally agree. It was, it, and and every now and then there would be something he would do on SNL that was just so different than anything. It was like I don't remember if it was Jan Hooks. He did one where it was just like they shot like a black and white film, and it was like a dance thing. Yeah, um, and it was beautiful. And then and then you go to like Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer, which is just the concept, one of the funniest. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's, it's great because it also is like very much how a lot of politicians are and the way that he, he like, you know, crystallized it into like a caveman was so funny. Um, uh. It's just, it's amazing. Yeah. He, he ruled, man. Uh, I love him. Um, well, I guess as a starting point or a continuation at this point, but uh, the deeply unfair question, how are you? Uh, I'm good, man. I, uh, uh i'm actually good i i had a really uh long very busy year after you know 15 something months of doing nothing um of doing very little i should say like not directing except for like a a small little thing at one point but i it was very i basically went non-stop shooting from march until about a week and a half ago so like i'm in like decompression mode right now and and I this is I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. feel guilty saying it, but it's like, man, it was a long year. So I'm like, I'm just catching my breath right now. <laughs> what was the first thing that you directed coming back? Was it Black Monday? It was Black Monday. Like in the middle of the pandemic, I had directed this Snapchat like talk show with Will Smith that like that we shot at his house. Okay. Um but it was like it, you know, it's not scripted. It was like uh, we would find people that did good deeds and that went viral. And then they would think they were going to have a zoom with a local reporter. And then he would pop on and then like their favorite celebrities would hop on or send in a pre-tape or we would send them gifts and, you know, gave away like cars and all sorts of crazy wow. stuff. Um, it was just pure positivity. Like he wanted to just do something positive at the end of last year. Um, but that wasn't really, you know, I don't know. It's it, it. Those gigs are weird as a director because you are directing, you are, you know, managing tone and pace and stuff. But like when the look is like just an interview, there's only, you know, it doesn't feel like work. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so Black Monday, the funny thing is, I, so I shot season two of Black Monday at the end of 2018. I remember wrapping November 22nd of 2018 and or sorry, 2019 and um yeah november 22nd 2019 and i remember i was i had so much fun in season two i did four episodes but i was so tired i was telling everyone like i need a couple months off 
And then, the, <laughs> and then, yeah, uh, I did direct a stand-up special for Beth Stelling on March seventh of last year, Whoa. like like four or five days before everything shut down in Minneapolis, um, and it was nuts because in like a forty-eight hour span, I was not only in a in a you know we did two shows in this theater. I like was in like six different airports, no mask nothing it was like we didn't we you know i just i didn't know enough um you know it was yeah it was a week before the lockdown and then um and then you know didn't work did the snapchat thing and then the first thing back was black monday in march so like and then when i opened my ipad and opened scriptation which is the app i use when i'm working um literally the episodes from season two were still open the files were still open uh like because i had just done nothing with that yeah. app since november so it was black monday so i was on black monday for uh, about four months three or four months i did half of the the this this uh third season and then i jumped on uh this hbo show and then i just finished this other uh new nbc show like last week but every show ended up kind of overlapping um and they weren't supposed to but you know COVID scheduling ended up screwing everybody over and um uh so yeah black monday was that first one man but it was just it was surreal it just felt like i never stopped i was gonna say yeah to have the bookends like that of well the before and after which obviously uh uh best-selling's girl daddy in between that but yeah very briefly like just under the gun which i guess the gun being when, when we when tom hanks got covid i guess and the yeah. nba postponed that's kind of the benchmark for a lot of people that was it, point? man. I mean, dude, I, I, so on March 7th, we shot the special that I went straight to the airport after the show and then took like a 5 a.m. flight. And I was like connecting two different airports because I was trying to get back to L.A. to go to the Clippers Lakers game. I didn't want to give up my tickets. Yeah. And so I literally did all that, got in an Uber, came home. My friend was here. We drove to the game and then like and then I remember when the world shut down like a week or, you know, like four or five days later and like weeks after that, we talked, we're like, we were in the Staples Center with like 18,000 people and no masks like two weeks ago. And how did we dodge it? It's, I mean, it was crazy. Yeah, um, it's wild to realize you're playing Russian roulette and you don't even know it in its own way. And yeah. I mean, not really, but it feels like that, you know, and knowing months and months, year plus later, what could have been versus what is now, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy, man. But yeah, Black Monday is what got me back back to work. That's cool. Is yeah. This is backtracking a little bit, but is Will Smith one of those people you meet where you realize immediately, oh yeah, you're, you're a movie star for a reason? Yeah, totally. Like he, um, before I actually like, like worked with him on set, you know, we had, a, we had a couple, you know, some creative emails and um, we would all text. We were on a text thread together. Um, and, you know, we were there the day of the first day of shooting and we're shooting at, at, you know, um, at him and Jada's house. And, um, and we were just, you know, waiting. And I, I just get so busy in what I'm doing that I don't really, I don't really, it doesn't really hit me. Uh, 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 like who I'm working with doesn't hit me until like, a day or two after wrapping something because like I'm so caught up in the work and the anxiety of getting it right and not screwing up and making sure I'm like checking off all my creative boxes and yeah. logistical boxes that like, I didn't really 
it didn't really hit me until like the project was over that like, Oh yeah, I was just like, shooting something with Will Smith. <laughs> um, but he like, but I'll tell you, dude, we were all there. Everyone's getting ready and stuff. And then like the second he opened the door and like came outside, you were like, Oh yeah, you're a movie star. <laughs> like that's a movie <laughs> star. And like, he was in, you know, a, a, um, like a, like a sweatsuit, like a really cool sweatsuit and like, sweetest guy in the world like he does that laugh and just everybody just pop it's like it's like listening to kid cuddy's hum like will laughs and you're like oh i know that laugh um <laughs> but no he has that energy but he's also like really engaging he's very curious about people he'll he'll chat you up like he's not like um elusive like you don't feel ego i mean obviously there's confidence there but it's not like ugly it's like he was you know we would shoot on the weekends and he was very mindful of us not going long because he's like i don't want people wasting their sundays you know going long if we don't have to and you know i'd rather people get back home with their families and stuff and and um you know he wanted everyone fed well like he's yeah he's he's a good dude but definitely has it's just he has that thing where you're like oh yeah i get it i see I yeah. see why you were the star of everything at one point. Yeah, I see why um, billions of eyes have gazed upon you and all endorsed you as, oh yeah, that's a movie star. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he really is. It's, 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 he's got a really special energy about him. I imagine, yeah. I imagine he's got that, I know they've said that about Bill Clinton in the past, about when he engages with you, it feels like he's, you're the only person in the room, you two. I Yep, I've heard that about him. He makes like that um, that perfect. Um, it's that eye contact that only a really, really good like sociopath can give you. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah, a true narcissist can give you. I mean, that is, Will is just like a good dude, but like that's the Bill Clinton thing where you're like, this this guy knows what he's doing. He does this yeah. professionally. Yeah, I was hesitant to uh, mention Bill Clinton in any sort of positive light, even a. A minor light of like shaking hands with somebody, but uh, so no, thank you for being the sociopath. That's good because yeah. uh, agreed. And yeah, um, yeah, it's the intensity of somebody with no empathy. Fair enough. No, they, yeah, that's all. That's all it is. <laughs> I mean, but, but by the way, just so anybody knows, politically, I'm a staunch liberal, but I'm not a moron. That guy's insane. Um, so <laughs> yeah. agreed. Uh, yeah, he's just it's a strange man, and I just I don't know how he's been able to dodge all the things that have come after him. Yeah, I um, might be in Little Rock, Arkansas, but uh, I get it. <laughs> yeah no hometown bias in that regard how has it been getting back to clippers games how's the energy too of everybody getting to come back to experience live basketball it's you know it's it's crazy man because the first the you know i um i was a season ticket holder through the year the bubble season yeah and then after that i just canceled because i was just like i don't know when i'm gonna go in an arena again and like i'll just go individual games and Last year, I didn't go until the playoffs. Um, but at that point, you had to show a, a, a recent negative test. And I know it still wasn't like foolproof, but um, the energy was there, man. Like, I, I mean, it could have also been because it was the playoffs, but it was also the loudest I've ever seen Clippers fans get. Um, and, but I anticipated that, that after, you know, I mean, this isn't over yet, but when it's like fully over, like the appreciation and just like the, the, the release, the energetic release of like being at a game, like, you know, I, I think it's, we're seeing loud, excited fans. We're also seeing more fights in the stands than ever. Like, I, I think it's, there's a lot happening, but the, 
it feels like just being at a regular Clippers game and, and the playoffs were fun. And I've gone to two games this season and um, the energy is okay. It's a little early in the season. It's tough. A lot of people aren't going because of the pandemic. They're also not going because it's early in the season. Kawhi is hurt. Like, so yeah. it's not like, it's not, um, it's not like buzzing there yet, but like both games I was at the Clippers, Clippers had comeback wins and like we got loud. So, um, you know, I, I think it, it's been fine. It's not, it's not what it used to be, but I think the other side of it, it's going to be better than it ever has been. Um, I can see that. I mean, it feels like too, you know, you're nine games in at this point. I imagine people are still kind of getting a feel for what is this team as much as like most of that team is intact, but it's uh, Patrick Beverly less, which is a dramatic change, at least in energy for a team no, he, to I not mean, have was, him on there. He, yeah, he was the culture of the team. He was like the 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 one common thread from the team before Kawhi and PG. And yeah, they, we don't know what the team is. And also like the whole league is playing poorly. Everybody's out of shape. Everybody had a short summer. They're also using a new ball and like... Oh, really? Like a, I didn't know that. Yeah, dude, they they went from uh, Spalding for God knows how long to... to um, um, Oh my God! I was like Rawlings or something? No, it's not Rawlings. It's uh, oh man, it'll it'll uh, Wilson. They went okay. to Wilson, and uh, the ball's not breaking in as quickly. It's a little bit softer, and they've interviewed a lot of players about it. And what they're basically saying is like everyone says the same thing. I don't want to make an excuse, but the truth is, it feels different. And there's been a lot more air balls so far this season, and um. They'll get used to it, but like I, re- you know, because the commissioner's signature is like engraved on the ball. I remember when Adam Silver became the commissioner, there were players like shooters that said they could feel the difference on the ball. Um, that's fast. I'm not surprised, but I never thought about that as a possibility. Like that's genuinely fascinating. Me, either. I'm like I, I guess if you do something and that's your thing, you notice the weird little stuff. Like that just seems so subtle to me. But yeah, dude, they're using like a brand new ball. I think it's so crazy. Like you think about someone like LeBron, who's like, I've literally used this other ball for 19 years, and now all of a sudden <laughs> you're changing the ball that yeah. we're work- we're playing with. It's yeah, it's, it's like crazy. not enough stuff is disrupting our lives. So why don't we just make this change to yeah. on top of it all? Yeah, perfect. Exactly. Oh my well, God. that and the new rule change is affecting uh, certain players, certainly James Harden types. A lot where, of that's um, man, that's taking time. He's he's not. A lot of guys aren't getting it, but the other thing that's happening that's interesting is the games are moving really fast. There's barely any fouls now, and like. The two games I've been to, like at one point I looked up and I was like, dude, nobody's been in the penalty tonight. This is crazy. Like the game just goes and goes and goes. Um, that's that's fun and interesting. And obviously that, I mean, just even from like a, a strategy standpoint, changes so many different ways of how they play, how you coach. Like the ripple effects are pretty seismic, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. Like you're, yeah, how you're going to distribute minutes and how long a guy's going to stay in. Like it, it's, you can feel the difference. It's really, um, it's nuts. It's, it moves so fast. And he also just realized like how silly so many of those fouls were before. It was like, they should have taken care of that years ago. Yeah. I did feel like it was a little bit of a long time coming for some of those. Um, especially just, I don't know. It feels like such a, a crotchety old man thing to say, but just about people pretty blatantly like jumping into fouls to then get them, which just a little bit of like, Oh, come on. No, I can't stand that stuff, man. That, 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 that James Harden and, and uh, 
you know, Chris Paul's the dirtiest player in the league. He does, he'll break and he knows all the rules to break. And then, yeah, there was just so many. And honestly, as much as I love D Wade, D Wade like got away with murder with that for years. Cause nobody, yeah. nobody could pump fake better than him. Um, he got everybody hot jumping, but <laughs> it, it was just a matter of time where you're like, this just feels like they've hacked the game and bravo. But you also just made the game boring. Like, um, like James Harden is the most talented basketball player that I have no interest in watching yeah. because like, I don't want to watch a guy dribble for 20 seconds before he makes a decision. And also like, to be honest, man, at this point, are ankle breakers that impressive? If a dude is going back and forth for 20 seconds, he's going to get you at some point. So like, I don't know to me, like one or two moves here and there getting a guy is more impressive. But like, I, like, I, I don't know, like who's, who cannot get their ankles broken? Like <laughs> this season, all the highlights I'm seeing is guys trying to break each other's ankles and everybody's trying to dunk on everybody now. Like, because it used to be so brazen to just go up and try to like get someone. Everybody is just like, all right, I'm just going to go and see what happens. And, um, <laughs> It happened the other night when I was at the game. Caleb Martin, of all people, tried to dunk on Serge Ibaka, and Serge blocked it. Like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I like the idea that Caleb Martin's like, hey, fuck it. You never know. I mean, this could work out for me. I doubt it. But <laughs> It'll we'll see. Him. And then Serge is like, no, it's not going to work out at all. Caleb Martin's like, this is going to buy me one more year in the league before <laughs> I go play in Turkey. This is going to buy me um, being talked about on a podcast one time. <laughs> podcast that has nothing to do with basketball <laughs> at all at all i was curious too that you know what is it that you notice seeing a basketball game in person sitting close being close to the action as opposed to watching on television like what what are certain things that you notice that you don't otherwise you, just because i like to observe like it's just from my job too, observing body language like you, there's another story element to the game that you're not getting when you're watching it on TV. Cause when you're watching on TV, you're watching the narrative that they're presenting to you. Yeah. And you know, you have certain commentators who like, they want to tell a certain story. Like if Doris Burke is on, I love her, but she's going to talk about LeBron in a certain way. Every time she's never going to go veer off that thing. And it starts to become predictable and like, it, you, and it's fine if they're selling a product they're selling him he's the best player in the game like i get that but when you go to a game you start to see oh these two guys are having a little back and forth with each other oh that's oh look at the coach is having an issue with that referee oh these two teammates are having a problem right now and you can start and and you start to see things happening before they happen like my buddy and I were watching the game the other night and, you know, we had pretty good seats the other night against the Hornets. And I was like, I got to go because I want to see LaMelo play. And, um, and there was a point where like, I was like, look at the Hornets body language. They, these dudes just want to shoot the ball. And like they're every time down the court, they were taking these like confident shots. But if I was watching on TV, I don't know that I would have clocked that. Yeah. Um, you know, you can a little bit, but I think when you go down there, you, you, you notice there's, there's so many other things happening in the arena that are affecting the game. Um, besides just the game itself, like there's so much going on and I, that's the stuff I love. Um, it's, to me, it's a show, it's theater. You know, I, I take my girlfriend to games and she's, she, you know, she's never been a sports person, but she loves like theater. And that's how I pitched it to her. I was like, you're watching a, a, a show. 
there's good guys and bad guys and, 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 you know, it's an ensemble, but sometimes a guy gets hot and it's like a monologue and, and it, it, and that's what it feels like when I go to games. I feel like I'm, I'm paying to watch a show. Oh, I like um, that a lot. Yeah. The high drama of it all. Yeah. 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 It's great. It's great. How I love it. He's so good, man. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> he's like, I love him. Uh, you know, and I was, you know, I was, you know, LeVar made all of us skeptical about all his kids because we're like, oh, he must be lying. Well, we know now Lonzo's turning into something real special in Chicago, but LaMelo is, he's the guy. That dude is going to have a sick career. Um, he's really talented and it's crazy because he's so young. Um, so he's like, tw- he's 20? I, I think he's 20. Um <sighs> And they don't they don't know how to guard him yet. And like he's still young. The, once the game slows down for him, I, I think he's, you know, that dude's. In, I think within like, within four or five years, he's an MVP candidate, like top three MVP candidate. He's he's really good. Yeah, to your point about um, <laughs> about Lavar is that he cried wolf too many times, and then when he says, "Oh, Lamelo's gonna be better in all of them," you're just like, "Yeah, okay." And and then you see, you know, stuff about Lamella was shooting like half court shots in high school and he's going over to Eastern Europe and then he's going to Australia and then you're still kind of, okay, I mean, I'll believe it when I see it type. And then he gets to the NBA and then you almost realize, oh yeah, maybe he was just kind of bored in a lot of places. I think and, he was, yeah. And then now it's just like, oh, he's he's playing stiff competition and he is just so good. He's, he's so good. good. He's so, And he has so far to go, which is, and like, I'm actually excited that, uh, you know, we all make fun of Michael Jordan as an owner, but the, he's putting together quite a little squad right now. Um, there's there's some talent on that team, like PJ Washington and and Scary Terry and Gordon and like this. There's they're like uh, if Lamelo shines in like the next couple of years, they might be able to pull like a gritty vet. Like that's the kind of team that needs like a PJ Tucker and then a guy like. You know, then you start to get other big vets and then eventually someone big to go join LaMelo that wants to play under MJ. Like, I think I think something's happening in Charlotte right now. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, it feels like they have I don't know what the exact, um, you know, average age per team is, but it feels like they're I would think one of the younger teams. But yeah, um, it definitely feels like they are they're They are happy to be playing and they seem to really enjoy playing together. Yeah, 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 totally. And I mean, it's got to be exciting because they know that there's eyes on them now and there's a little more incentive because before it was just like, you know, you know, people would see the Hornets on the road because that was like the cheap game to go to. But um, now they're, you know, you want to show up. There was a lot of people there for LaMelo. When he got announced, there was like a loud cheer. It was loud. And, and, you know, he's a local kid. And I think that has a lot to do with it because like, there weren't, I mean, there was cheering for the Hornets, but it wasn't like that. It was specifically LaMelo getting cheers. <laughs> um, I like it. Yeah, that's really cool. How was the um, the virtual fan experience during the NBA bubble? That, you know, it was it, it was cool just to say I got to do it. I think I did it maybe three times. Um, it, it was okay. It was like, you know, it was all done through Microsoft Teams, which is like Microsoft's version of, of Zoom. And yeah. Um, they would, you know, put you in a random section and, you know, you'd be with other fans and then like a, there'd be like team. I think they were like team and, and NBA people that were like there but hidden, just like watching. 
Um, and then there'd be like a couple, like a cheerleader or something or, or a hype person from the team. Like every section had like other people besides fans and it was okay. The weird thing was like, um, and I think they fixed this towards the end or maybe they didn't. It's good and bad. You can hear everyone, which is fine. But the problem is, you know, it was an app that a lot of us weren't used to using and, and, um, so you had to listen to all the IT conversations like <laughs> where someone's like, hey, I don't know how to do this. And then they would be talking to them and we all were listening to that while watching the game. Okay. And um, so that was kind of lame. And then, um, you know, there was a delay, which was really weird because like we would cheer watching something and then you see it on TV and you're like, oh, that's why everyone's reacting like four seconds late. Um, <laughs> and obviously they can't do it live for you know, technology reasons. Also, you got to, even though everybody is signed a waiver and you're, you know, you're late, you know, you're, you're responsible for what you do. Like, I don't know, someone could have like pulled a dick out or something like, so they had to like considerations. Yeah. Yeah. They had to like, be careful for that stuff, but it was, it was okay. You know, it felt, it did feel like I was watching the game with other people, which was a thing I hadn't experienced in a long time. Um, but, uh, I started to just become a little too self-aware of myself yeah. Uh, and like not making a weird face or not eating on camera. So I didn't pull a George Costanza, um, and like have ice cream on my face when the camera gets on me. <laughs> uh, but it was, it was fine. It was just like, I, you know, I did it a couple of times. And then like, when they asked if I wanted to do it during the playoffs, I just, I didn't want to. So, um, I was like, I want to just watch the playoff games. Uh, and I'm also glad I wasn't on camera for that, that meltdown against, uh, Denver. <laughs> Because my Fair face, enough. I would not have had a good poker face. <laughs> Fair, yeah, no, I could see that too. Yeah. But I could also see it where, you know, if you were, in retrospect, yeah, it probably sounds like more of, maybe as much of, if not more of, a distraction than not. But then again, when they offer it to you, it's like, yeah, that sounds cool. Let's give it a try. Yeah, right. totally. It was like, this sounds crazy. It sounds like it's, you know, be part of sports history. I want to do that. <laughs> uh, I was curious too that, um, completely different topic, but... I was curious that you said before that when you were like nine or 10, you realized that you had made this, you wanted to do something involving comedy, mm-hmm. but then maybe 10 or 11 years after that, maybe in your mid twenties, you realized you wanted to be a director in comedy. Yeah. What, what was the impetus for that? What made you want to become a director? I, I mean, yeah. I mean, the reason I didn't, I realized I didn't want to perform is I tried a little bit, um, of stand up, like, you know, a handful of times and like the anxiety, you know, the 24 hours before even an open mic was so severe uh, up until the moment I'd go on stage, it was like fight or flight. And then once I went on stage, I was fine. But then I just realized I wasn't built for it. And, Mm. and I did okay. I didn't bomb. Like I knew how to get laughs, but it wasn't like, like as I was meeting the other comics, I was like, yeah, there's a toughness that you have to have that I don't have. And I just didn't feel like, yeah, I just knew that I that, that I just that I'm like I don't ha- I I know I, I don't think I have it. So, I was really honest with myself. So, I was like I think I'm going to write um cuz I just knew I wanted to be work in comedy and then you know, it made sense cuz I would look back at stuff I would write and it would be stories. It wasn't jokes, I was telling stories. And um and then eventually what it was uh it was a friend of mine uh, was watching the big Lebowski at my house and I glanced over because I was working on something else. And then um, uh, there was the whole bowling 
uh, scene with John Turturro, you know, with the slow motion licking the ball and the, you know, that whole slow motion sequence that, 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 you know, then turns into like a narrative scene, just like, I, I like hypnotized me where I was like, what the hell is this? And then my brothers or my buddies telling me these guys, the Coen brothers. And like, I, I just, I had never seen visual comedy before. I was just used to the, you know, the, you know, all the guys from SNL that I loved. Um, and, uh, and then I was like, then that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write and direct because that would make sense. And then as I went through like my notes, I realized that I was making notes like, like I would write something like do a scene where a guy does this. And it wasn't even like a story. It would be like a set piece. And, and, but at that time I didn't know that that was like directing. I didn't know what the job, I didn't know what, what a director was. I probably thought a director and producer were the same thing. Um, but it was the moment that my buddy was like, these guys wrote and directed it. It looks that way because of them. That's when I was like, Oh wait, that's what I'm supposed to do. And then, yeah. um, and then immediately like decided to go back to school. Cause I, you know, dropped out of college after getting my two year degree. Cause I was like, I'm going to do comedy. And then I was like, comedy sad. And then, <laughs> um, and then I found it and then, you know, called around, ended up just going to the closest college near me that had cameras we could check out and then that and that was it and then i just like went full at it i finally found something i was you know i went from being a, like a 2.0 student to 4.0 because i was actually studying something i gave a shit about um so it was it was truly it was it was it was the fear of performing and then eventually the big lebowski that made me realize that i i should direct that's interesting i mean that's a that's a hell of a movie to be the inspiration or the the realization maybe even more so. Yeah. Of, totally. What an incredible movie. Yeah, I just um I think one of the movies I watched watched the most in terms of uh repeated viewings was probably Blood Simple during all this. Oh, love um, Blood Simple. It's incredible. Like uh, just to watch it and marvel at it, knowing this is their first feature at least, or just I first know. movie, and you're just like, Fucking hell, man. I like, understand. oh, they just always had some form of that just immediately. Yeah. That's, I just, we're so lucky that we got to see their stuff. I mean, I'm, this sounds so funny to say about two very successful people, but I'm so glad those guys made it. <laughs> like just oh, for, all, just for all of us, like, uh, yeah, just the amount of people they've inspired. And I've met so many filmmakers that, you know, those guys were the impetus. Oh, I imagine. And just, um, I mean, even three weeks from now ish, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson's new movie, Licorice Pizza, comes out. And now lose. that some uh, people have seen, like, I think it was, like, Guild screenings uh, in the last week. And I've it's the most jealous I've felt in years, honestly. Because I've never... I want to watch that movie immediately so badly. Uh, I've, uh, I remember watching that trailer when it first came out. And I've watched it probably at least a dozen times. I had a such a massive response to that trailer. I cannot wait to watch that movie. Yeah, I'm the same. I was working on something and someone's like, you see the new PTA trailer? And I was like, what? And I literally walked outside to watch it in <laughs> silence. And then I came back in and I was like, oh, man. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. yeah, just to know of, uh, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, we know what we're in for. And it's also him living out his childhood in the 70s. It's like, oh, this is everything I could ever want. And I need just, it right now. Exactly. No, I'm, Have you... Wait. um? Have you been able to, have you gotten back in the theater since all of this started? Not yet. Not yet. Um, 
The movie I wanted to go see in theaters, but I haven't gone yet, is which it's now on Netflix, is um, The Harder They Fall. Um, I that, watched that, that the other day, yeah. Oh, because the cinematographer um, uh, shot my two episodes of this HBO show I did about the Lakers. So, like, um, this is brilliant DP. I mean, speaking of PTA, this guy shot The Master – um, he shot Jojo rabbit and, and, and how do they fall? I was like, cause he was showing me like just stills like before it released, like when they were in color correction. And I was just like, this movie looks so dope. Uh, and the trailer just got me so hyped. I think, I think I'm actually going to watch it tonight. Um, it's great. But, it's, but yeah. it's so beautiful. Like so vibrant, the colors in it. And it's, it's so interesting. It's such an interesting movie. I loved it. Oh, nice. I'm excited. Yeah. So I haven't gone yet, but I, you know, I want to. Very soon. I want to get back in the theater. I miss it. Yeah, I've seen a handful of movies, like maybe three or four, and I planned on doing it uh, with Dune, but then, honestly, the idea that I could roll out of bed and watch Dune overrode my my ability to work up the mental energy to go to a theater. I to feel you. It, so. it's, it's a real thing, man. <laughs> it really yeah. is, man. It's uh, You have to really, really want it. And, uh, yeah. and at that point, I just wanted to roll out of bed and watch Dune. Dune. So I did that. Um, I do wish, in retrospect, that I had seen *Malignant* in the theater. That would have uh, been yeah. amazing. One of the best experiences I've had all year watching a movie. As I'm just cackling to myself for all <laughs> ninety to one hundred minutes, however long. Um, that would have been a great experience. But maybe, maybe *Licorice Pizza*, maybe *French Dispatch*, something like that. Right. Because there are so many movies coming out now. Man, I've got to see them. I'm very excited. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's you're the first person I've talked to, or at least that I know of, that worked with, and God, I hope I pronounce his name right, uh, Tommy uh, Wiseau. Tommy Wiseau, yeah. <laughs> on the Tommy Wiseau. Yeah. And I was curious, is he, I know that um, Tommy Wiseau being writer-director of the cult classic The Room, for anybody who doesn't know, but I was curious, too, is he, um, is he somebody that, from your experience, is he aware of what people expect or think of Tommy Wiseau or is he somebody who can't not be himself? Honestly, man, I, I probably, I probably spent God between our like seven or eight shoots. I probably spent 20 to 30 hours with this guy and I have yeah. no idea how to answer your question. <laughs> like I can't like, there's some times where I think he, he gets it. And he embraces that it's, you know, a comedy to some people. But you hear him in Q&As go, I want you to laugh and this, but also show respect. Because I think I think he for real wrote that, like, being earnest. I think he was trying to write a movie where he was the hero. And, and um, I mean, I don't know the truth behind what was going on in his life. But when I watch that movie, to me, it tells me, this is the way I interpret it. He was in love with a girl and uh, that was probably a friend. And then she was more into a friend of his. And then he wanted to write a movie on how he was a hero and people fucked him over and the same thing happened to him. That's the way it, 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 it comes off to me. And because every other character in the, in the movie, half of their lines are exposition lines on good things he's doing. And <laughs> yeah. like, They'll be like, you know, you pay for so-and-so's college and his apartment and, and this. And, you know, he calls himself Johnny and he's got a football. He's trying to be all American. Like, 
and and he's like the victim in the end and everyone's crying like to me that i was like because it feels like a student film energy a guy got dumped or a guy got rejected and then he wanted to write a thing about being a hero and you know english is not his first language or you know maybe not even his 10th language but (laughs) but like um that makes it you know that adds a lot of comedy to it the fact that he wrote it and then you know english-speaking american actors were were speaking in his grammar is that there's so many weird lines in the movie because you're like oh they're literally just writing lines that that man wrote um and and uh so yeah i don't know man i i think i think there's some I think there's some, I think there is awareness, but I think there's also, it feels like a thing in him that like that movie means something to him, but also how do you run away from that success that came? Um, I just don't know, man. He's the, he's the most mysterious person I've ever met. Um, (laughs) Like more than I even thought. I thought like, I don't know, part of me thought once I worked with him that, you know, there'd be this like, wink wink nod like i get what's going on type of thing but i was like no he's that's just I, that might be who he is <laughs> so um yeah fascinating that's amazing man. fascinating well, man well yeah i think i do think that the reason outside well for a lot of reasons but the reason the room really resonates with people because it was so in, in my mind so clearly done in earnest yeah and and totally. that makes it very endearing on top of everything else it does, man. Like if you, it, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's it's um, like I don't. I never thought anything negative of, of him. It was just one of those things where you're like, wow, somebody made something bad and like thinks it's good, and we find it. And you know, there was a certain guilt we had as an audience laughing at it because, like, are we laughing at this man and what he's gone through or whatever? But then also, it's like so funny that you can't not <laughs> laugh. Like yeah. how every, you know, I, I was one of the people that, you know, there was a, a year and a half where, you know, I was there first Saturday of every month at the screenings that he would show up to. And and this was before I worked on the show. So when I got asked to, to you know, do that show, I was like, what? <laughs> like, I was very excited and, and confused at, you know, how my life had come together in that way. Um, but you know, we'd be at these screenings and, you know, we'd be yelling out stuff and bringing spoons to throw and, uh, yeah, man, we were, I was all into it. I was completely into it. And, and and what you notice in those screenings is like every scene has a fatal flaw. Like every (laughs) scene has something that went wrong. There's, and then the funny thing is then there's a scene where it's like Lisa and her friend and they're like hanging out in the living room and it's dialogue wise, the most normal scene in the movie. They're just having a conversation, but, and it's not, you know, it's not bad. It's not like, you know, cringy like the other scenes, but then the girl playing Lisa is, is positioned in this really weird. She's at this weird angle where every time she speaks this like giant, like, you know, her neck bulged on what, you know, like, you know, I don't know when you make like a, a big E sound and you get that like giant, like, thing, I don't know, is that a vein, yeah. whatever that is, but her neck would bulge on the syllables and it was so distracting. And when you go to the live screenings, every time it happens, everybody screams. And, <laughs> uh, and it's so funny. Cause I, like a minute in the scene, you're like, Oh yeah, this is just a normal scene. And then something went wrong. <laughs> it was just like, it was like the universe tried very hard to tell them not to make that movie, but they just kept shooting it. But also just with that, even with something as kind of benign as that neck, that that could either have been just 
bad filmmaking or a specific choice. Yeah, yes. And that's what's totally. fascinating and endearing about it is that you don't know, but it, it kind of adds this this level of mystery that's kind of riveting in its weird way. It, it really is. It really <laughs> is, man. Uh, you mentioned, too, that you directed, you directed a few episodes of the, well, as of yet, untitled uh, HBO show about the Showtime Lakers. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was just curious, too, that uh, did you get to direct basketball scenes for that? And what was that experience like, if so? Yeah, yeah, I did. So, um, yeah, the show, I, I, the last I heard, I don't know that there's a title yet. I think it's still um, untitled. Um, and it comes out, um, I think, in March. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, people people will see trailers for it. But, um, yeah, I did. I had um, my two episodes actually had a lot of basketball. Um, and... Um, uh, the basketball was really elaborate. It was, um, you know, we had a basketball like coordinator slash trainer who would be working with the players, you know, the actors that were playing the players along with the, like body doubles and he would draw plays and, and, and physically train them to get them, you know, uh, in shape. His name's Edon uh, Raven and the dude like, you know, Edon's worked with like Chris Paul and LeBron and like, you know, he does Nike commercials. So like this guy like really knows the game. Wow. Um, so, you know, basically we, the, the, the basketball stuff, you know, I would get, you know, the script, I would, uh, we would talk to the, you know, the basketball side of it and to start to talk about, uh, uh, what it's going to look like. Then I would meet with my DP and a storyboard artist and we would storyboard out the basketball sequences. Then, you know, we would do a rehearsal day where they would like present the play to us. And then we would get, you know, myself and the showrunner Max Bornstein would be there. Um, and Rodney Barnes, who's one of the writers and producers on the show. And we were there and we're all basketball nerds. So we'd be there to make tweaks and know, well, we, you know, because we're like, this is the play. The play has to look dope, but we have to tweak things because there's a story we're trying to tell. Um, and, you know, you have to play with time a little bit because, you know, a lot of times it's, it's quick beats on the court and then the eye contact and this and that. Um, so, you know, we would do that and then we would tweak the storyboards and then we would do uh, and then we would often do a full rehearsal day with cameras. Um, like where we basically like we, we have everything mapped out from the storyboards, but we are like physically lensing up the shots and going through it. And then the next day we actually shoot the scenes. Um, So it was, we put, and and it's good that we did because the basketball, you know, it takes a long time. (laughs) It takes a really long time. Um, uh, But it was a blast because I love basketball and I I love shooting it. And, and uh, it's, it's not for everybody. I, you know, I could see if somebody like wasn't into sports at all or, or, um, especially basketball. Like, I just feel like it'd be so confusing. Um, but luckily I, you know, dude, I was literally, um, doing previs and storyboards and planning through NBA 2k, uh, because that, because that game's graphics are really good. And it has not, not the, the, we, I, season one is the 1979, 1980s team. Uh, they, but the 2K has like the 85 team, which still has Magic and Kareem and, you know, a lot of those Cooper and stuff. And then, you know, they had a Celtics team from that era. So if we were playing in Boston Garden or the Forum, that's in the game. So then I could like take a picture off, you know, the TV with my phone and show it to the VFX supervisor or show it to like, 
the showrunner, the DP to be like, hey, here's kind of what I'm thinking. Because I would basically try to replicate the play and then uh, go into the replay mode. And then there's a free floating camera. And I would literally like previous stuff. Um, and it was hilarious because like I was using a video game, but it actually ended up coming in really handy. And uh, I would literally, if I had to mimic a play, I would put it on like the whatever the rookie mode is. Yeah. And then, you know, do the longest, you know, 12, full 12 minutes a quarter. And then all I would try to do and turn stamina off. Uh, <laughs> and, and I would just like steal the ball from the team and just keep trying to mimic this play until I got it. And then I would go get all my shots. That's um, amazing. Yeah. So it was really cool. But yeah, the basketball there is, I mean, there's, I, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, you know, they're hour long episodes. I would say in my two episodes that had a lot of basketball, it's, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes an episode is basketball, maybe less than those. Like it's, there's a lot of behind, I mean, there's so many characters. Um, but yeah, the bat, yeah, there is, there is a considerable amount of basketball in the show. Uh, yeah. That's what I was curious about just because I don't know. It, it does feel like, um, just based on what I've read, it does feel like just, it's a, it's very much a behind the scenes show seemingly just mm -hmm. what's going on in the locker room or, or a lot of, Walk and talks, or God knows what, but the, but just from the sheer size of the cast and star power within the cast, like it's a in like just there's so much talent involved with that show. It's pretty impressive. There, there. Um, I had no business being there. <laughs> like <laughs> I, and like I, man, dude. The le I mean, even down to like the onset dresser and the onset prop people and the sound department. Like everybody was like. I work with a lot, obviously I've worked in TV. I've been able to work on a lot of cool stuff. I've worked with really talented people, but I was like, this is my first time working with HBO. And I was like, these people are like really good. <laughs> like this is like, <laughs> I got to really bring it every day. The show definitely made me a better director. Cause I just, I had to, you know, I was working with like freaking legends. I was say just the idea that you walk on set, you just marvel at like, Oh, okay. Oh, oh, HBO doesn't fuck around. Oh, gotcha. Okay. They don't. Okay. They, I mean, it was clear right away. I was like, yeah, this is, HBO really puts it in. They really, <laughs> they really, they really lean in. I was going to say, kind of in a way of meeting and speaking with Will Smith and realizing, oh yeah, this is why your movie star with HBO are like, oh yeah, this is why you make all the good things. Yeah. You just see it. Like, just like there's the, even the, um, I mean, I, I'm sure they're giving lot of notes uh but it just feels like they're like we bought this show for a reason give us that show and what do you need to make that show and and i think that's why you know that's why their hit ratio is so high i think yeah it's really impressive how you know they it's um it seems like they have a mark of quality and an understanding of what they're one out of a show or a movie and getting out of it but not in a way that i guess stifles creativity because you know mm -hmm. you, it's like when when they made game of thrones after that everybody's like oh well i guess we just have to create a global phenomenon like game of thrones that's easy enough right, and then right. and then hbo's like cool and then they're producing other things at the same time and then now everybody wants to make a succession and it's like yes. oh, good luck with that that's not really how that works you exactly. can't just you can't just create alchemy like that it just kind of has to happen well, I think but, that's the um, the thing in our industry is everyone just they just want to recreate things that they've heard. Like they they want to know somebody's success story because they want to recreate it or they want to remake a show or like, and it just never it never works. everything has to happen its own 
its own way. Like you're not going to like, you know, yeah, you're, you're right. Cause like a show will come out and, and you'll just hear people wanting to pitch something like that show. And you're like, that's the reason it got picked up is because it was different. Like yeah. the same reason that they, I always say this is that they keep trying to remake classic movies and TV shows and forgetting that the reason they are classics is because they were original. <laughs> like that's yeah. why, that's why they resonated with us. Like, uh, yeah. So it's just, I'm waiting for the day when they try to remake back to the future and the internet like truly implodes. God. Um, you I know, think... the day, like the day after Robert Zemeckis dies, that's when they're going to be uh, suddenly announce it. That type of thing. About, I'm like, yeah. I'm back, telling back you the it, universal, the universal lot's going to look like January 6th, man. <laughs> like, <all> these, like, <laughs> these nerds are going to come tear that place down. Like it's not going to go well. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, the the reason you can't remake the room, for example, is because when they made it, they weren't trying to make the room. Exactly, exactly. And you could try to do it, and it's it's just not going to happen. It's got to be organic. It'll it'll almost guaranteed to be a a disaster, and unfortunately, not a fascinating one. Yeah, which is the problem. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it is funny just the idea that um, oh, Succession is hugely popular. Let's try to make our own version of Succession. After succession, like after it's already been popular, it's just like that's not, yeah, it's like I wonder why that never works. Yeah, and if you try to do it, guess what? You have to be better. Like, you can't just come out and be like, hey, this is like a less good version of that show. No one's going to be like, cool, I'd love to give them an hour of my week. Like, (laughs) it's like, hey, what? Okay, so I'm going to pitch this show to you. What about succession, but shitty? Does that, (laughs) does that sound good to you? What about ex- succession, but exponentially worse? How about that? <laughs> like, cool. We need content. IMDb TV, perfect. Sign me up. We just need something. That's amazing. <laughs> um, well, last thing I want to ask you before we wrap it up, but I was curious too that you've directed, you know, episodes for existing TV shows, but you've also directed like for Robbie the pilot episode. And I was curious, like, what is the experience of being a director and directing a pilot versus and what, what it is to direct a pilot as opposed to an existing show? I mean, it's radically different. Like when you're doing when you're doing a pilot, um, you know, you're deciding the look of the show, uh, you know, how it's going to be shot, how transitions are going to work. Obviously, you're still under like the rule of, I mean, that sounds so ominous, but the rule of like (laughs) the showrunner and the creators, but as direct, as a director of the pilot, you're given more control. It's part of the reason they, they give you the keys because they're like, you know, help guide us into what our show is going to look and flow and sound like. Um, And, um, and, you know, you can make a lot of, you know, decisions that are going to, that are going to, like ripple for years like you know when we did robbie like part of what we were trying to figure you know we were trying to figure out is this a handheld show or is this a studio mode show where you're you know the camera's on tripods and dollies and um and talking to my dp on that carl hersey was like we kind of wanted to do everything so then my idea was like well then we have to do all of those things in the pilot and then you have the license in the future. So like we have handheld stuff, we have dolly stuff, we have steady cam stuff, we have like 
you know, crane stuff, like inserts, like we did all that stuff in the pilot. And then, so that just gave us license the rest of the season. Like, Hey, just shoot the scene, how you think the scene feels and it won't feel strange. Um, And, you know, you have a bigger, you have a bigger say with casting when it comes to pilots and, you know, you're, 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 you're almost on like the producing side of it. Um, And whereas when you're an episodic director, you know, you're, you're, you don't have, it's not what, you know, some people struggle with being an episodic director, especially if they've done like a, a movie, uh, because y- you're not the boss. The writer is God in television. The showrunner is God in television because ultimately you're making their show and your job as an episodic director is for the audience to see that episode and like that episode and not go, that was a weird moment for Brooklyn nine, nine, yeah. or that was a strange shot. Like, so it's, it's, you know, you're basically, the difference is like, you're, you're, you're helping steer the ship when you're, when you're, when you, when you're doing a pilot, but when you're um, doing a TV show, it's like, you know, they have a rhythm. It's like a game of jump rope. They have a rhythm and you have to go to that rhythm and you add a little bit of your flair and your ideas and stuff here and there, but you're really there to execute their show. Um, so it's different. It's more logistics than it is you know, purely creative is, you know, feeling like a, a visionary or an auteur. Like that's just not the job when you're doing yeah. e- episodes. Well, and that makes total sense. I guess, yeah, to your point, like you're, you're creating the visual language for what this is. And I guess, you know, the ripple effects from there, I guess you're dictating that as opposed to, you know, to, to being dictated to, I guess. Yeah. 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 Exactly. That makes total sense. Well, okay. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. But uh, what all, if anything, do you want to point people toward before we wrap it up? Uh, of mine, like stuff of mine. Yeah, well, or or others, oh, like whatever man. you want. But I don't, uh, I don't really have any stuff. I wouldn't even worry about me. I would say, here's what I would say. Okay. Uh, uh, it has nothing to do with any of this, but I, it's something I've discovered, rediscovered recently, and it's been amazing. Go find a hobby. Uh, especially if you're working in uh, entertainment, because it's easy to get caught up and think that working in this industry is the only thing that matters. I, I, I took up a hobby recently and it's made work easier and life easier. So forget, you don't need to go see my work. You need to go get a hobby. That's what I would tell everybody. Can I ask what the hobby is? Uh, I am... I am back in the hobby I was in 25 years ago, and that is I'm in the sports card uh, trading card world. Man, that's uh, wild you said that because I've been itching to get back into that. Dude, it is booming. It is crazy. It is big. I will. We should talk after this if you if okay. you need advice. I'm learning a lot. It's been I've been back three months, but I'm in such I'm in so heavily. <laughs> like I have a full inventory system at home <laughs> and everything. Because eventually oh, I'm going to be selling and flipping and stuff. But just like the idea of having another thing that you're thinking about and you're not just anxious about work, like, oh, my God, what it does to diffuse anxiety. I just I can't overstate it enough. I'm like, how did I not find a hobby earlier? Um, OK, yeah, that's that is man. I completely agree with that. And uh, yeah, that's wild because I was thinking about it today that I'm I almost went on like eBay or something and bought packs. Oh, today. Man. Because I, I saw some cards and I got the itch, big That's time. Amazing. To do it. Well, it, it eBay's the place, but we should talk because okay. a lot of a lot of people are taking advantage of people right now. I'm learning a lot, so. Oh, I imagine. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, let's wrap this up so we can talk about that. Thank you all for listening. Please stay safe. Please wear a mask. 
please get vaccinated if you're not. Get a booster if you're ready for that. Either way, be kind to yourself, be kind to others. Take care. Bye. Thank you.